It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. It's Friday the 11th of March on the Michael Reed Show this morning. The number of people with COVID-19 in hospitals around the country has risen by almost 30% in the last week. With recorded infections also on the increase, is it time to go back to wearing masks in public? With the prospect of the cost of fuel set to see further increases in the coming weeks, the effects on households and businesses in some cases will be significant. We find out firsthand just how bad it really is. Ireland's next census is set to take place on the 3rd of April. It will generate a detailed picture of social and living conditions in Ireland. This morning we will answer all your questions in relation to filling out the form. This and a whole lot more between now and 11 o'clock. Do not forget, if you want to call us this morning, you can do so on 041 983 2000 or you can text or WhatsApp us on 086 1800 658. Good morning. You're very welcome to the programme. Now, with the prospect of the cost of fuel set to see further increases in the coming weeks, the effects on households and businesses in some cases will be significant. Already we're hearing stories of some transport companies having to park up trucks because it's just not viable to do business anymore. And some households find themselves struggling to do the daily school run. To assess the impact of the price hikes, we're joined first off by Leanne Kearns. Leanne is of the private bus operator group who runs Kearns bus hire in Drogheda. We'll also be talking to Tracy uh, Gary, who's a mother of a 14-year-old and a nurse and has to do a significant commute every single day. We'll also be joined by Fianna Deputy Fergus O'Dowd. First, Leanne, to you. Talk to me a little bit about your own circumstances and how much longer you can afford or continue to do business under the present circumstances relating to the cost of fuel. Good morning, Alan. How are you? Well, look, this is a countrywide problem. It affects every single person who drives in the country. But unfortunately, it has a very detrimental effect to any commuter who drives to work and for those like us who drive for work. Because, you know, we set our agreed prices for our school runs in August the previous year. We send out our contracts to our parents. And the last thing we want to do at this stage is to go back to our customers and say, you know, we can't, af- we can't afford to run the service at the price we give you. We're going to have to give you an increase because they're currently experiencing their own increases 
for their own mm-hmm. daily running of their cars. Can I just ask you, Leanne, in relation to those contracts, are you in a position where you can renegotiate them or do you have to stick to the terms of the contract as initially outlined in that failure for you to deliver the services seen as breach of contract? It would be, yes. So, for first of all, we have services with bus air and we can't change those contracts. They're five-year contracts and there's nothing we can do about that. And with our private hire contracts, yes, we can go back to the customer and say, you know, we can no longer provide this service. We've already had to do that with one of our corporate contracts this week. Um, But with our school contracts, we're going to try our very best to see what alternatives we can look at, like shortening routes, possibly cancelling services for those that are outside the normal run of the route that might make the service longer. Or even might have to go down the road of amalgamating schools and routes, which means that the children will be on the buses for an awful lot longer, but it might save us diesel or putting buses on the road. How close are you to having to implement such a strategy? I'd say by the Easter holidays, we will definitely, if, if this continues past that, we will have to do something. You do accept, nonetheless, that it will probably be accelerated, given the fact that we're seeing the cost of fuel uh, increasing almost day by day. Absolutely. Since we started, let's say, our school runs in August, the cost of fuel has risen by 66 cents a litre and 44 cents of that is since the middle of February. Okay, perhaps if you could put it into pounds, shillings and pence for us. If you look at, for example, two months ago compared to today, what's the difference in terms of expenditure for your company on fuel? Per bus, per day, at the moment, um, our bigger buses do seven miles to the gallon. We do about 100 miles a day for each school run per bus. You're talking 40 euro a difference a day in fuel. And that's just not sustainable. You cannot absorb that. No, well, that's 200 euro a bus per week. Extra in cost um, in in the space of maybe six weeks. You have obviously spoken to, to some parents in relation to the possibility of having to increase the cost of the school run. What sort of feedback are you getting there? Um, resistance, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, people are accepting it. They know it's going to happen. They know that if there's no changes made, it's the, it, we don't have an alternative. It's not that we're jumping on the bandwagon and just deciding to put the, up the prices. They understand the situation we're in. But we have reassured them that we're going to try everything. We're going to try for assistance from the government. Um, we're going to look at our own routes to see what we could do before we do that the increase. But otherwise, they understand that we have to do it. But we're going to lose a lot of customers over it because they just can't afford it. As I said, they have that increase already from running their own cars in their day-to-day life. Now, you talked about Easter being a pinch point for you when it comes to having to reassess seriously what you're doing. But at what point will you have to close the door on the business, would you think? Well, we were listening to an, eco- an economist on the radio yesterday doing an interview and they said that they envisaged that the fuel will go up as far as 350 per litre in the next couple of months if nothing is done about it. At that point, it just wouldn't be financially viable to run a service. Do you accept nonetheless that the government is not really in an enviable position that it can continue to subvent the cost of fuel in this country because it has to look at other parts of society and the economy that we'll have to pump money into and it's not just all about fuel. They're doing the best they can under the circumstances. They are, of course. They have an awful job. You know, they're running, they're rolling from the last two years of dealing with COVID to dealing with this, but they need to, they still need to look at this because the country will come to a standstill with the hauliers, with the couriers, with the bus companies, the taxi companies. They're all affected, even people bringing their children to school. But they need to look at something to implement an emergency plan that maybe looks at the, the increases in the fuel. Like maybe there's, 
There's a 90, say there's 90 days worth of fuel in the country at the present time. So if the prices have been increased daily, are they being increased on the fuel that was bought 90 days ago? Are the garages benefiting? Should there be a plan put in place that maybe that you have to prove that you bought the fuel at a certain rate to put the increase in? Um, with bus operators in particular, and this is not like all years, we're not allowed to claim VAT back on our fuel. And even if they implemented a 0% VAT rate for us, it means we could claim VAT back and we get 23% back, which would be a little bit of help. And again, they'll need to start looking at the example of the other EU countries to see how they were able to put a cap onto the price. I know that it's not as simple as it sounds, that they can't just do that, but they need to start looking at an emergency okay. plan. We're, in essence, I suppose, speaking in isolation here in our own region, but this is this is common amongst all operators, and I presume you've been talking to them. They're, they're experiencing the same sort of problems. Yes, yeah, so we're part of a group called the Private Bus Operators of Ireland, so we have people all over the country. So yesterday I would have been speaking to operators in Donegal and to and across the country and they're in the exact same situation as ourselves. Okay, stay with us Leanne. I want to bring in Tracy Gray here. Tracy, um, mother of a 14-year-old, lives in Yellow Furs in County Meath, is a nurse, has to commute every day to Beaumont Hospital. Tracy, at what point do you find yourself in a position that you'll have to say, I can't afford to use my car anymore and public transport just doesn't work for me? Yeah, I'm kind of already at that point. I had a a strict budget plan before this all happened. Um, I started price watching probably around 152.8 in my area. And then the budget came in, which was recent enough. That brought it up to 160.9. And it's just been escalating ever since. So I was already penny pinching beforehand. Um, my local area is not too bad uh, well it's not great but it's not too bad we're up at 198.9 at the local Texaco garage that hasn't changed in 24 hours so that's good there is a CERTA garage 199.9 that hasn't changed since yesterday either and then Circle K has changed and actually come down to 195.9 so you know I have options but it's so weird to be looking at those numbers compared to the 152.8 previously So you were talking about somewhere in the region of about 50 euro to fill your car would that have done you the week? Well I travel to work for 40 kilometre per week so that's four days a week I have four weeks holidays so I've done a bit of maths for you so for 48 weeks that I'm on the road, I do clock up 21,000 kilometres per year. Uh, that was roughly costing me 3,230 a year. My costs have jumped up by 30% since the increases. It's now up around 4,180 a year. And you have to find that 30%, which is very yeah, difficult and, to do. And, and, and like coupled... I mean, you have to keep the car on the road. Yeah. You've got maintenance, you've got car tax, you've got insurance. So, you know, I'm clocking up costs on a car that actually needs to be replaced soon. Um, so I'm really, I'm freaking out. Um, I, like, I'm still spending 50 euros a week, but what I'm doing now is reducing my car usage on my days off, my rest days. I'm literally housebound again, you know, and as a nurse, we've already been kind of um, reducing our movements and contacts to maintain COVID precautions for work. So I'm still in isolation again. But coupled with all this, you have a 14-year-old daughter. Now I know what it's like to have teenage daughters. You're the the taxi, as it were, for them because you have to drop them here. Exactly, you have to bring them here, there, everywhere. And they always have their hand out looking for money. 
that presumably is also going to have a huge impact, not just on your life, but on your daughter's life as well. Yeah, massively. So, um, you see, we don't live in the town. We are out of country roads, so I do rely heavily on the cars. I'm not on a local bus route. She'll have to probably start cycling into town if she wants to meet up with a friend, you know, and I'm going to get organised for that. But she does need a lift into her hockey on a Sunday. And, you know, I just have to rationalise with her. And that's actually the reason why I had already done all these figures. It's terrible. But to rationalise with a 14-year-old, she does need the facts and she needs to know where you're coming from. And then she actually, to be fair, is quite understanding but she's now making sacrifices because of the situation I find myself in. I've heating oil to fuel. Now, thankfully, the weather is showing signs of improvement, so I would be very less reliant on heating oil. But I've actually adjusted my thermometers and told her to start wearing jumpers and, you know, woolly jammers and all that kind of thing. But then her school bus, like what the lady before me was talking about and having to increase, we're aware of the school bus costs, like um, my local area, He's already told me that, you know, we're considering a price increase when the Easter holidays have resumed. So we're expecting it. Can I just ask you about your daughter? Because your daughter as a teenager, like so many other teenagers, came through a very difficult period because of COVID. They were isolated from their friends. They had to study at home. They had none of that social interaction. This is going to happen again because of this. And that presumably will, will impact her, will it not? I'm so worried about that because that's the reason why hockey is prioritised at the weekend because it's exercise and social contact and an opportunity to go and be with her friends in town afterwards for a coffee. So, yeah, I have, I'm have. i still very conscious of prioritising certain things, but it will put me my back against the wall. I can't work extra hours because I'm working the 39-hour week. I'm at my tax limit. So any extra will just be given away back in tax. So I can't justify the cost of getting to work for a half a day's pay, really. Um, buses, I've looked into the, you know, how to get to a carpool or a, a car park. There's one near me, all right, to get a bus. But then I'd have to get a bus to Bus Aaron and another okay. bus to Beaumont. So that's not viable. It's, it's actually more expensive. Um, and if the prices go up of you know, public transport, then that's also a consideration. OK, Tracy, just stay there with us for a moment because I'm going to bring in Fnugail Deputy Fergus O'Dowd. Fergus, you've been listening to Tracy, you've been listening to Leanne as well. What comfort or solace can you bring them in terms of financial support? Because I would imagine Tracy's story is a common story that we are going to hear in the coming weeks. She needs help. Of course she does. And just on the question of public transport that you... Uh, mentioned last, and I appreciate fully how difficult how life has become, as indeed everybody else's life has as well, with all of the increase, price increases that are coming and have come, and there's more food prices coming, there's more prices increased for farmers and so on. The only thing I can say is that in terms of the public transport costs, they are reducing uh, from April by 20% till the end of the year. It's not enough, but it, it's a start. But I know that public transport isn't always an option for people who don't live on the bus route. But for for tens of thousands of people, it is an option. And obviously, clearly, by increasing the availability of public transport, uh, that is is one solution. As regards regards to school transport, I absolutely agree with everything that Leanne said there. And I understand the huge problem they have because they can't write off uh, their vast... as other companies can, 
So I've, I've been in touch with the Minister for Education about this issue, that we should ring-fence public transport costs. Um, that's something, a debate, obviously, we'll have to have on that. Um, the question of reducing that, generally, I raised with the Minister for Finance. We had a meeting with him on Wednesday. And uh, I know that Michal Martin was in France yesterday arguing the case for a relaxation of the rules in the European Union that will allow the government to reduce, for instance, the cost of diesel by more than the 15 cents that they have done already. And Fergus, can I just say, because it's important that we understand we can't necessarily go off and take decisions willy-nilly as a government. We have, in some cases, have to get the green light from Europe. So that needs to be understood as well. We can't just do something overnight. As I understand it, and it's just a simple explanation I was given, is that to reduce that further on fuels and gas and electricity and so on, we can do that if we want. But at the end of the period of the reduction, we can't go back up to the 13.5%. We have to go up, according to EU rules, to 23%. So in other words, if we reduce it now, the rules won't allow us to go back up to 13%. It will only insist that we go back up to 23%, which is not acceptable. But as I understand it, the European Union are discussing this issue. I don't know what the outcome is, but I do know that our government is pressing for the ability to do that, should okay. they so decide. Fergus, can I ask you to comment just on one particular issue, and it's sure. one which is very concerning. Adults are pretty resilient. We find a way through. We take on board a lot of pain and we try our best to get through it. But when you talk of teenagers, particularly Tracy's daughter, who's 14, who will find herself being isolated because she won't be able to support her in terms of bringing her to go and meet her friends, we're back to COVID lockdown for a lot of the children who find themselves in isolated rural Ireland and some parts of, of urban Ireland as well because they don't have the ability to access transport. Yeah, well, I think the question is there. It's predicated on the cost of transport. It's not on, it's not on anything else. And the news today is that, the, is that the price of oil internationally is actually dropping, I understand, to about $109 a barrel whereas it was up over 130 there earlier in the week. And it is obviously, it's going to hit all of us. And it's not the end of the increases because farmers are going to have to pay more for the fertiliser because people have to pay more for their transport costs in their business. Costs are going to go up. So this is happening right across the world, actually, and particularly, obviously, impacting on families. And I, I understand and appreciate fully, you know, how, how people... Phil and Tracy and Leanne, and I know other people I'm talking to. And that's that's why I think that we have to take on board the very reasonable points that are made there. And obviously the government is listening, and it has acted. It has acted in terms of supports. It obviously, notwithstanding everything else, the cost of your diesel should be €9 less per fill than it was before the actual... Let me just pick up on that point, Fergus, and we have have an issue here. The anecdotal evidence coming is that, you know, there's price gouging at the pumps. We had Kevin McParlin on yesterday from the importers who represents them, and he tells us that's not the case, and he outlined how the whole pricing works. Now, the Competition and Consumer Protection Commission can do nothing to keep an eye on this, what do we do to make sure that we're not being ripped off at the pump? Well, I spoke to them about that yesterday, and you're absolutely right. Price gouging 
can happen any time if there's excessive profits made as a result of something like a war, which is the situation right now in, in, in Europe. Uh, the difficulty is that for the Consumer Protection Commission to act, they need complaints. And that's why I suggest in the dog that it's up to everybody who feels to have a genuine complaint to contact complaints at ccpc.ie, send a complaint in, and that would be examined. But they need proof of what they call collusion or of a cartel. And it, that's very difficult to prove. So the law only requires the petrol retailer uh, to put his price up, uh, her price up, in the public, very visible space. Uh, and if there is evidence of cartels or of collusion, uh, they, they will act. But clearly, it's very hard to get that evidence. OK, and we must point out as well, Fergus, there is absolutely no suggestion that such a cartel is in operation. I mean, we're talking no, about just anecdotal no, evidence here from different uh, yeah, different suppliers. It, it, yeah, it, it's all what we see. But one thing I do see, and I don't know if any of your listeners would agree with me in this, but I have to drive a lot and I appreciate I do about 40,000 kilometres a year, which is, I know it's an awful lot, but 20,000 is a huge amount as well. But what I notice when I go into towns down the country, that the price is always the same at all the garages. Now, it might be different in a different town. It might be lower or higher, but in the other town, it's the same price as well. Okay. Fergus, so, we, now, we, that may not be a cartel, but it's certainly a similarity. Okay, well, it's, similarity. it's called competition. But we, it's not we, called competition, <laughs> it's called lack of competition. <laughs> what I like to see is difference in prices. So, you know, and I would urge everybody to go to where the cheapest price is and buy there. Uh, but like people don't really have a choice if you're in the country. They don't okay. have a choice if you're in a small town. You know we, we've got to leave it there, uh, Fergus, but Thank thanks nonetheless for joining us. Deputy Fergus O'Dowd, Funagail Deputy there, and we also had Tracy Gray on and Leanne Kearns. Let's take a break. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Welcome back. Britain has imposed acid freezes on seven further Russian businessmen, including Chelsea football club owner Roman Bramovich. In total, Britain has said seven oligarchs added to the sanctions list because of their connections to the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, had a collective net worth of £15 billion sterling. Government said it would enable Chelsea football club to continue playing matches, but the sanctions will halt Mr Abramovich's plan to sell the English Premier League side. Let's get the latest on this. Paul Lennon is football correspondent with the Irish Daily Star and we're also joined by Jerry Curtis of the Dundalk Chelsea Supporters Club. Paul, to you first. Let's put this into context in terms of how Abramovich has changed the fortunes of Chelsea Football Club. He has had a significant impact, or should I say his money has had a significant impact. A huge impact, Alan, because when he bought the bought Chelsea in the summer of 2003, they had been successful in the previous few years. They had uh, made inroads in winning Cups, uh, League Cup, the Old Cup Winners Cup and the FA Cup. And they'd also managed to qualify for the Champions League that, that, that May, the day, a few weeks before. Uh, took over, but they also had incurred significant debts in, in the region of about 140 million. Uh, sterling. Um, so th- that was huge money. The club was very close to the banks closing in on it. There was possibility of administration even um, going into liquidation. So uh, Ken Bates, the owner, uh, managed to do a deal with Abramovich, who he earlier spoken to Spurs about taking over Spurs. That went nowhere. So he took over. And because of his personal fortune, and uh, which was accumulated 
from the early 1990s through his business dealings, um, so to speak, in Russia, he was able to um, pour a huge money. And just to, put, to give you sort of round figures, since he, he took over Chelsea in 2003, he's put in of his own money, lent to club, almost €2 billion. Euro. So that's roughly about uh, 100 million a year. So that completely distorts the the way yeah. the club is able to operate. If you've got a uh, sugar daddy putting in this sort of money, you don't have to balance the books at the end of the year. So if he's just writing checks. So Chelsea, even though they were a relatively large club in, in English terms, they were nowhere near the Man United's, the Arsenal's, uh, the Liverpool's in terms of turnover. So this this allowed them to compete at the top level because their ground holds 40,000. It's not anywhere near as big as Old Trafford or even uh, the Man City's ground. But the Bramish's money allowed them to compete. They started winning leagues. They started winning European Cups. They've won two of them. And they've been at the top level in, in England and in uh, Europe since then. Well, I suppose the British government took the political prudent decision yesterday not to shut down Chelsea completely. They're operating under a very strict licence, which will essentially allow them to play some games under certain restrictions. But the question of its sale, that seems to be um, under scrutiny today in that they may have to do a little bit of horse trading to see if Abramovich can actually shift the club. Yeah, I, it, the the current restrictions run until the until May thirty one, and obviously a lot of this contingent on what happens in, uh, in in the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Abramovich has said he's going to sell the club anyway, so we know that's going to happen. I think there'll still be talks going on behind in the background to enable this sale to go ahead because he has to get out because he is now linked with uh, Vladimir Putin, and there's no way the British government or the English public or or football uh, will will countenance this, even though some Chelsea fans were still singing his name last weekend, which is absolutely repugnant. But anyway, I think it'll still go through. I think then what you're in a, you're in a, you're in a, in a very interesting area. I think Chelsea will Chelsea will fall back because there's no way, in my view, they're going to get a sugar daddy like a Bramwich that's going to throw in a hundred million per year and just write it off. So I think Chelsea will slip in terms of its ability to compete. There'll still be a major Premier League force, granted, but their, their finances will revert back not to where they were 20 years ago, but to where other clubs are today in in the Premier League. So I think this is a, this is a seminal moment for Chelsea. Uh, I think they will probably get to the end of the season. They probably have enough money in the bank. Uh, but if, if this went on much longer, you would see in the summer. I would think the possibility of the club running into major difficulties because it, it's be, these sanctions mean they're not able to generate season ticket money from the end of the season. It means they can't sell tickets for for matches. Their main sponsor has, has suspended its 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 deal with them. Other sponsors will follow suit. Abramovich is gone. So suddenly you're down, you know, from having a turnover of three or four hundred million a year, you're down maybe to having a turnover of fifty, sixty, a hundred, hundred and fifty. Just finally, um, Paul, can I ask you? Different uh, scenario. In in relation to the sale, are we looking at the possibility of picking up a reasonably good asset at a very good price? Do you think? Uh, yeah, it, it's yeah. It, people talk about three billion. I, I find that uh, way. There's a lot of people very sceptical about that because. If you buy that, you won't generate that sort of money to pay back uh, over the next 10, 15 years to pay back that money. So unless you get another Abramovich that's willing to throw in, you know, 2 billion euro over 20 years to subsidise it, you won't find a, a new owner of that. So Chelsea, as I say, will be, will be a force, but there won't be the force they have been for the last 20 years.
Okay, Paul Paul Lennon, football correspondent with the Irish Daily Star. Thank you for joining us with that. Jerry Curtis of the Dundalk Chelsea Supporters Club. Um, what's your take on on it, Jerry? From your own perspective, unless, as I understand it, you're a season ticket holder, you're not going to be able to go to any matches. Yeah, unfortunately, that's that's true. But first and foremost, our thoughts has to be with the Ukraine people. So it is not just with football in general. Football goes on. Sport goes on. But the Ukraine people are suffering big time. So that's what first starts. Even as Chelsea supporters, even we have a which as our owner. But going back to say we won't be able to go to games. No, we won't, unless you're a season ticket holder. Unfortunately, I gave up my season ticket five years ago because of Sky changing games from five Saturday nights to Friday Saturday afternoons to Friday nights, Saturday nights, Sunday nights. Monday night, so he didn't know when you could get to a game. Well, let me ask you, Jerry, as someone who's followed the club since, oh, probably back as far as the 60s. Well, I've followed since maybe 63. 63. Well, are you, do you see this as a pivotal moment in the club's history that, in fact, we may see things change so significantly that we won't recognise what Chelsea is in terms of a force in a year's time? Uh, it's a short term. It's a short term, but I still think. We have the foundation. We have a, a, a great academy coming through. We may not have to go out and buy the superstars. We may have them already. We're in our own ranks. That will get us over this blip. As we, I'll call it a blip because we've been there before. We've been in the old first division, the old second division. But we've risen from the ashes and we'll rise again. And what would you like to see the final outcome being in terms of a sale? Or where would you like to see Chelsea well, in a year? Any, well, you have to say Abramovich has been absolutely brilliant for Chelsea. Like, I mean, 19 years, 19 trophies. Um, it's going to be very hard to replace him. Um, and I know there's an awful lot of people that talk about the Russians and everything else, but He'd also done an awful which has gone under the radar at the moment. No one is talking about all the good work he has done through the pandemic. And the British government applauded him for it, you know, um, when he threw his two hotels at Chelsea at Stanford Bridge open to the HSE people coming back or NHS, whatever they call it, or medical people in England. Um, he, he threw it open to them. He's 10,000 meals a day um, that's that's the good side of the man, he done an awful lot of good stuff too, okay he may be associated with, with Putin, I don't know whether he is or he isn't. Okay but, but politics aside, just very finally and briefly, will Chelsea recover from this? Certainly we will certainly we will. Okay Jerry, we leave it there, Jerry Curtis, right. Stundalk Chelsea supporters love, thanks for joining us Alan Cantwell on LMFM Welcome back to the programme. Analysis based on numbers just released by DAF.ie this week shows a growing financial gap between buyers and renters right across the country. This gap is now higher than ever, with rent over 30 years now costing up to €297,000 more than a €30 mortgage. 
or 30 year mortgage. Give you that figure again, just shy of 300,000 euro. Now, based on the most recent daft rental price report, MoneySherpa.ie analysed how rents now compare to the equivalent monthly mortgage payments on the same properties county by county. And joining us this morning is Mark Cohn, founder of MoneySherpa.ie, an independent personal finance website based in Dundalk. Mark, good morning. You're very welcome to us. Morning, Alan. How are you? One, I'm good. I want to look at these figures. Let's look at Louth. So we have a price of two, just under two hundred and fifty thousand for a home. Rent per month is one thousand three hundred and ninety-six. The mortgage is eight five nine. The potential saving there is a hundred and ninety-three and a half thousand euro. And in Meath, we have a cost of three hundred and one thousand for a home. Rent of one five. Mortgage of just over a thousand, difference there, 174,000. We can all do those figures, and I don't mean to be uh, trite about this, but the reality is we have no choice in this country because we don't have the supply to buy. That's the reality of it, surely. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Alan. But what we really wanted to do um, with, with the survey, I think we've all intuitively um, understand that there's a real there's a real crisis in housing. Um, but what we wanted to do with the survey was put some real numbers on it. And um, in particular, we wanted to put some numbers on it um, to drive the policy agenda um, elsewhere in terms of there's currently a consultation out with the central bank about uh, mortgage lending li- limits, um, about whether they should be adjusted. Um, and we do believe um, here at Money Sherpa that there is an opportunity to make make some changes on the back of, of some hard numbers that show the situation where we've got people renting today who are paying, as you say, in Louth. The average rent is 1,396. Um, they are able to pay their rent, but they're not able because the salary um, cap of three and a half times um, for your mortgage um, um, limit that they're not actually able to um, pay a um, mortgage of 859. So that is a situation that is exacerbating um, the issue with supply mm-hmm. that we already see. And that's really the purpose of us um, doing the analysis and sharing that. Um, okay, but, but you do recognise, do you not, Mark, that when you start talking about potentially tweaking what the central bank rules are around lending, that alarm bells will start to ring because... It's not that long ago that we saw the financial meltdown as a result of overexposure by homeowners when it came to borrowing from the banks. We have to be prudent here with what we are doing in terms of our rules. You're absolutely right, Alan. And I think almost this is part of the issue in terms of putting some real numbers around the situation, because... Uh, the central bank and policymakers have got a little bit gun shy because of the crisis in 2008. Um, but essentially, by keeping the lending limits so strict, they're they're moving the deck chairs on the Titanic because the effect of that is people can't buy, so they remain trapped in the rental market. So what we've ended up is just shifting the problem around to the rental market and uh, forcing prices up in rent. And that's why you see things like in, in loud that disparity, that you see 859 um, for the rental and 1,396 um, for, um, sorry, 1,396 mm. for the rental and 859 for the mortgage. I think it's quite telling on our analysis because we did the whole country. 
that the one area in the country that had the lowest disparity um, was South County Except Dublin. Which, which is quite extraordinary when you think of the cost of houses there. Yeah, now I can't genuinely hand on heart say um, what the reason is for this, but my guess is that um, that's the, the area of the country where perhaps the bank of mum and dad is able to step in yeah. to sidestep um, the mortgage issues. And you, you're actually seeing a more normal market. And I think if we increased um, the central bank lending limits um, to a certain extent, I'm not talking about kind of a free-for-all here. Well, we're talking about, what, three and a half times salary is what we operate at the moment. They look for a 10% uh, deposit. So what do we want to do? Do we want to tweak the salary number or do we want to tweak the fact that maybe coming up with 10% of the cost of a home, which is astronomical, is just not viable? Do we go back to 100% mortgages? Do we go back to interest-only mortgages? What's the solution? Or is it a twin-track approach between build more houses and loosen up on the mortgage rules? Well, the first thing is building more houses is, is ultimately the only solution here. But, but right now, because that obviously takes time, um, there, is, there are things that we can be, do- can be done instead of wringing our hands and saying nothing can be done. And I think what's really interesting, the three and a half limit is the strictest in Europe. So typically there are lending limits um, across um, the, the, the European area. But they're one of two things. There are either a salary cap, but more like 4.5 or 5. Okay. Or they're based on affordability. So this scenario of people who are regularly paying rent and manage to put, uh, despite paying rent, manage to put together a 10% deposit and still can't get a loan, which is, I think, is we're seeing as a mortgage broker, we think that's actually quite common. Um, that, that's the most kind of... Um, that's the most kind of ridiculous situation we're getting. And if we were to move um, the, the, if we were to change the rules around that, we'd at least help those people. We can't solve this problem for everybody, but we'd at least help those people, those trapped renters okay. who have the money um, to, to buy a home and, and, and to start to build some wealth um, for the long term, because otherwise they're just wasting their, 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 their income on, on paying rents. Very good. Mark Cohn, founder of MoneySherpa.ie. Thank you for joining us this morning. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Just before we press on on the programme, we just want to bring you up to date in relation to how generous the people who listen to LMFM are. We have raised €62,000 as of 9am this morning in our Red Cross Ukrainian crisis appeal. €62,000. That is quite a figure. If you want to donate, just go on to our website, www.lmfm.ie and pledge no matter how small it is. Ireland's next census is set to take place on April 3rd. It will generate a detailed picture of social and living conditions in Ireland. A team of 5,100 enumerators has started delivering over 2 million forms to every household in the country. These forms must be completed on census night and will be collected before May 6th. Joining us this morning to answer any questions you may have about filling out the form is Eileen Murphy, Head of Census Administration and a Dunlear woman as well, Eileen. Good morning, you're very welcome. Good morning, thanks for having me on, Alan. Talk to us first of all about the census. Why do we need to do it? What do we use the information for? So, uh, 
as you mentioned, Census Night is Sunday the 3rd of April and we really need to get that date out because uh, we were printing the census forms just as COVID hit and we didn't know when the census was going to be happening so we had to take the date off the form. <laughs> so we really need to, to get the message out there that it is happening on Sunday the 3rd of April. Um, and the census is a count of the population of the country at a particular time and it's vital for planning um, all sorts of public services such as health, education, housing, transport. Um, but it's not just government that uses the figures. Uh, businesses use uh, census figures to decide where there's a reasonable population to either to get staff to work in their business or to frequent a retail outlet or something like that. Uh, but also the great thing about census is, as well as all those national figures, it gives us really good local information. And um, all the results of the census are published free on the Central Statistics Office website, cso.ie. And anyone can go in and look um, at the numbers for the local area. So if you feel you need a new playground or sports facilities, you can go to the census and say, we have, you know, X amount of children of such and such an age mm-hmm. and we don't have facilities for them and petition for them. And you have the data there to, to back up the request. And I just note that census forms from 1901 and 1911 are freely available. So that would make for interesting reading when you compare how we have evolved since then. But let's talk about April 3rd. It's straightforward enough if you are at home with a family, you just fill out the form. But that could change. For example, let's suppose a member of the family is not present on the night. What happens then? Um, So there's a space on the front of the census form to record uh, some absent persons. So if they normally live in the household, but they're just not there on on the night. And then there's a short number of questions that you complete for those people just inside the back of the form. Equally, if they're somewhere else in Ireland on, on census night, so say if it's a student that's in dig term time digs or something, they should get a census form um, at their term time address. And so they would fill it out in their uh, their address there. And there is another question on the form that then asks, you know, is this your usual address? And if not, where do you usually live? So then we can we can track people back and make sure that we haven't missed anyone or that we're not double counting anyone. And if a family, perchance, may be out of the country, there's no requirement on them, is there, to fill out a form? No, the census is uh, a track of who is in the country on census night on April the 3rd. So if you don't spend the night of April the 3rd in Ireland, you're not required to fill in a form. But the enumerator, when they come to your house to deliver the form, if you give them that information, they will take some basic details from you um, about the family situation. Again, just to make sure that we have details on usually resident populations. And as I understand it, there is a legal requirement upon households to fill out the form. There is indeed. Uh, It's required under the Statistics Act and the Census of Population Order. But, I mean, we find that um, Irish people really engage with the census and lots of people look forward to filling it in and we've always had great participation um, in the census. I suppose it's probably a measure of how we've evolved as a society that we have taken this opportunity in the current census to put in some new questions there. Yeah, um, so... The census needs to stay relevant and there's certain questions that are always asked in every census because that allows us to track trends over time, over different census, how things have changed. 
But equally, um, we, we want to keep up with what's changing in society. So after the 2016 census, we did a public consultation and we asked people what questions they wanted to see on the form. And we got over 400 submissions for, for um, new questions on the form. Obviously, we couldn't facilitate them no. all. Um, so we did um, some testing and cons- consultation and a pilot of testing some of the questions. Uh, and we well, what were the top choices? New ones. <laughs> what were the top two choices of questions? Well, the, uh, no, the, it, there wasn't a choice. There was a, there was a whole number of well, them. Sorry, maybe I phrased that wrong. With, was there renewable energy yeah. sources in, in the houses, um, internet access and devices, working from home, uh, and childcare, how people are accessing childcare, what different types of childcare people are using are the kind of the top four. We also have ones on volunteering, smoking, smoke alarms, um, and, and, and again, the travel, the commuting, travelling home from work or school. We always asked how you went to work in school and now we're asking about coming back home as well. What about the rationale behind the notion of allowing a degree of flexibility for individuals to do the time capsule piece in terms of putting in their own thoughts for the future a message for the future, what's that about? Um, Well as we said the the census itself is mandatory but um, we came up with the idea this time of there was a, a little bit of space on the form um, of putting in what we're calling a time capsule. So it's really just a, a blank space on the form uh, to allow you to put your own message in the form if you like. And this that one is voluntary and optional. So, um, you know, if you want to talk about what your life is like in Ireland and in 2022 um, or if you want to send a message to your descendants or share a secret family recipe um, it's really up to yourselves like we, we think this would be a really important part of social history as you know the, the census forms are locked away for 100 years and are only released in 100 years time so in 21, 22 when people are looking at these forms what would they like to know about how our life was today and and as you mentioned, if, if we had this information from the people in the 1901 and 1911 mm. census forms, we can just see a name on a page. If we could see a message or something that they had written to us, what would they have been telling us? Let me ask, has anybody ever been taken to task for not filling out the form? Um Yes, uh, as I said, most people uh, are happy to fill in their census forms and uh, we get great support from the public, but it is a legal obligation and we do try and work with people and encourage them as much as possible in in any way we can to complete the form. But uh, if they don't, uh, they can be prosecuted. Now, there's one thing I need to ask just around security because obviously enumerators will be coming to doors, picking up forms, dropping forms. They will have the relevant identification all that sort of thing. Absolutely. So um, really important that uh, you confirm that the person calling to your door is an actual census enumerator and you'll know that because they're wearing yellow high-vis vest with census enumerator on the back and census on the front and in their little pocket of the vest they'll have their ID badge which tells you that they're a census enumerator and that they've been appointed as an officer of statistics uh, from the central statistics office which means that they must keep your data safe and confidential at all times Um, and uh, CSO satchel so um, you, we do ask that uh, you open your door to them to take the census form. Again, the census enumerators will never enter your home. They will only talk to you on the doorstep to take some basic information from you and to hand over your census form. Very good. Eileen Murphy, Head of Census Administration. Thank you for joining us this morning. Don't forget that date is 
April 3rd, census night. Let me just bring you some of the comments we have been getting in relation to some of the items we covered so far this morning. Kira from Drogheda, many parents won't be in a position to pay more to get their children to school on the bus. It's already very expensive. Not fair that this will be passed on to parents who are already struggling, but can understand that the bus companies themselves cannot be expected to shoulder the cost. Surely it's time for a reduction in VAT. Seamus from Dundalk, there's a war on, Alan, so unfortunately we may be expected to pay more the rise in petrol it won't be just that it will be a lot more with food also expected to go up and Anne I commute to work every day and I can identify with everything your guest Tracy was saying it's a huge strain on our household finances and there will be no day trips at the weekend from here on in It'll be like restrictions again, but for economic reasons. Now, the number of people with COVID-19 in hospitals around the country has risen by almost 30% in the last week. There were 803 COVID patients in hospital with 51 of those in ICU. The 808 people with the coronavirus in hospital on Monday represents the highest level in six weeks since 824 on 25th of January. This coupled with a record number of people attending hospital emergency departments in the last week at over 28,000 is causing real concern. Joining us with the very latest on the COVID situation is Monaghan-based GP and Medical Director of NEDOC, Alona Duffy. Alona, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, Were we somewhat being over-optimistic, thinking we're moving to a a phase of living with COVID? Because it strikes me things are pretty serious out there, particularly in hospitals? Well, Alan, I suppose, look, we always knew that at every step of the way, when we opened up, we saw a surge and we would continue to see a surge in cases. Um, That added to the fact that the Omicron variant is so highly contagious was always going to mean that we're going to see the rise in numbers in the community. And I suppose that's reflected by the fact that people are no longer required to have a PCR test and are just advised to do antigen tests on themselves if they're positive, if they're close contacts and they're asymptomatic, they no longer have to isolate or restrict the movement. So if you if you have one child who's sick at home, in the old days, all the children, the rest of the children in the house would have to stay at home if they were unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. Now, as long as they're not symptomatic, they don't. But that does mean that some of those children obviously will be brewing it and will pass it on. As you said, the real measure always has been that how is this going to impact with regards to serious illness? And really that's reflected not only in hospital numbers, but as you rightly said, in the ICU figures. So in some ways we are seeing, yes, the rise in those in hospital, but the real measure of how bad this is affecting us is going to be the ICU figures. And if we start to see those rise, it will indicate two things. Number one, that those perhaps more vulnerable are being affected adversely by this virus. Or number two, that we may be starting to see a change in the virus again and that it may be moving from the Omicron variant to a new type that may Uh be presenting with more serious illness. I wanted to talk to you about that because like any virus, it will mutate. We'll see different variants over time. And only this morning, the BBC were reporting about the Deltacron virus. Um, Have you come across that? Well, unfortunately, there is no way of us to feedback. Now, as we know, how did how was Omicron found out in the first place? It, it was detected because uh, GPs in South Africa had a means of being able to send information back into a central agency to say we're noticing a change in symptoms. And I think that's something that we should be having here because on the ground, we are seeing a change in symptoms. And I would say, I'm, I know I'm not a virologist and I'm not the specialist, but on the ground, I'm seeing a further change and many of my colleagues are. We are see, seeing people present again with symptoms more like, let's say, the Delta or previous variants, where they're having more severe respiratory symptoms, so more shortness of breath, more wheeze, more tightness. 
uh, presenting with loss of taste and smell again, which was not associated with the Omicron variant. And as a result of that, we're definitely finding people maybe a week into the virus when normally they'd be much improved and ready to go back to work or saying, you know, I'm still short of breath, I'm still not great, I'm still really weak and I can't go back. So I do think on the ground there is a change. And um, Whether we have to be worried about this is only going to be reflected when we see what the numbers in the hospital are. And I suppose back to the hospital figures, we have to remember not all of those who are in hospital and have COVID are in hospital because of the COVID. Many of them may be in hospital with other things, the heart attack, the stroke, yeah an accident, but also happen to have COVID or perhaps pick up COVID along their journey through the hospital setting. So I think perhaps some breakdown of those figures would also offer some reassurance. And obviously our public health colleagues will have that breakdown. But again, when we get those raw figures of, you know, X number in hospitals with COVID, it can appear frightening. But again, I think people need to keep their guard up. And while uh, masks are optional in crowded areas such as shops and things, I think for those people who are at risk, who have underlying health needs, who have age against them, perhaps other simple things, like we talk about risk factors, but simply having high blood pressure, somebody who's on antihypertensive medication, somebody who's overweight, they count as risk factors. So perhaps more of us need to continue wearing the mask in those public areas. What's your own professional view when it comes to mandatory mask wearing? Do you think we should look at that, given what we are seeing in terms of the numbers? Um, I think we're probably, it's going to be very difficult to revert to mandatory mask wearing. And I think we've now kind of loosened that. But I have to say, it, it's very interesting, even as, as an ordinary puncher walking around shops and things, that the day that the, the thing changed, I went into a supermarket, a large supermarket, wearing a mask because it just felt not comfortable not wearing a mask. But yet I had actually had COVID the previous week. So I was probably the best person not to wear a mask. However, I really felt like an oddball in there. People actually stopped and stared at me as I was, as I was wearing my mask. So um, I think, um, I think, you know, I think it varies. Now I'm seeing more people in shops and in gathered areas wearing masks. And I think many people are kind of realising, gosh, everybody knows somebody who's got COVID. Many people are realising that some people can be quite sick with it and are requiring time off work, which people can't really afford to be doing anymore. So I think I'm definitely on the ground seeing more and more people wearing masks. And I think that's probably to be welcomed. At what point? Not only for COVID, by the way, not only for COVID, because we now know that flu has arrived and there are flu cases out there. So even you're going to protect yourself against any viral illness. At what point do you think we will be in a position where we will be able to live comfortably with COVID in that I talk about symptoms of the common cold. Will we ever get to that point where, okay, you have COVID, but it's now a common cold. You can go to work and, you know, infecting other people will not have serious consequences or implications. Well, I think this has probably changed our viewpoint on everything and that anyone who is obviously potentially contagious with any infection, and that includes simple things like gastroenteritis, flu-like illnesses, probably should not be going into the workplace infecting people either in school or people at work. And I think we've always had this kind of mantra, oh, get on there, you know, man up here, go in, work work through your illness. But the reality of it is that that's why flu spreads. That's why other viruses like gastroenteritis spread in workplaces and other areas where people are gathered. And I think our mindset has got to change now where we now realise that if you're unwell, and when I mean, I don't mean just a mild sniffle, but I mean if you're running temperatures, if you clearly have symptoms such as a, a fresh cough and you're coughing up sputum, you're feeling virally, you have the aches and pains, or you have vomiting or diarrhoea, 
you shouldn't be going into work, you shouldn't be sending your child into school. And I think that's where we've got to go. It's not even about um, it's not even about COVID anymore. It's about other viruses and protecting others from getting these. And I think now that most places have the option to allow people to work from home if they are contagious, I think it shouldn't be just contagious with COVID. It should be contagious with other viral illnesses too. Now you spoke about flu. Obviously, there's the annual flu jab that most people will get, particularly if they're over a certain age or they're compromised. Will that be the situation when it comes to COVID in the years to come? Well, I think we're going to learn from that data because as we know, ongoing data is seeing how long does the vaccine work? How long do you get protection? We know that with the flu vaccine, we get a a longer protection period with it. um, And the hope is that as time goes on, perhaps we'll see less variation in the Omicron, or not the Omicron, but in COVID moving along to different variants. And number one, that they will become less severe and perhaps become more like an ordinary coronavirus. And again, they are part of the coronavirus family, which is part of the common cold virus too. Um, So perhaps we'll see it just become so mild that nothing needs to be done, or perhaps we'll say, yes, people will need an annual booster. I don't think it's going to be sustainable to have two or three vaccines a year because I don't think people will adhere to it. They won't want to get vaccinated that often. And as well, I don't think we have the resources. I know general practice um, really struggle to, you know, to do all of this extra work and work longer hours to provide clinics that wouldn't interfere with normal daytime surgeries, but that can't continue in the long term. What's your own professional assessment in terms of the learning outcomes of COVID and how we can bring them to bear on potential potential viruses in the future? Are we now much better place to be able to react a lot quicker? We are much better placed, but we still have some learning. We know that public health, um, it became very apparent that public health departments were under-resourced with not enough public health colleagues available to do the work and that we definitely need to invest in this. I think, as we're aware, many of our laboratory technicians um, may be going out on strike this week because they really have worked well beyond capacity, have continued to do this, and really um, there were so few of them available to add into their numbers that we need to also look at that. And Again, it's getting that right balance, not that we have too many staff in one area who won't be required uh, at other times, but perhaps that we'll improve our surveillance of other viral illnesses and be able to kind of track them and maybe minimise their impact. And, And again, that is back to things like influenza. I also think that um, one other important thing that became very apparent at the beginning of, of the outbreak of COVID was that there were many people throughout the country who had access to no GP service. So people who have no GP, they've moved to an area, they've come to the country, GP practices are closed because we have such a shortage of GPs. And we know that practices around the country are struggling, have closed their, their doors to new patients because they just can't provide a safe service if they continue to have increased numbers attending them. So I think that's something that's also got to focus the minds of those who are developing services and to make them understand that we've got to see improved access to general practice around the country for everybody. Just finally, I want to ask you about um, vaccinations. Are you still getting pushback when it comes to vaccines? Are people suddenly see the light of day, say this is the only way to go now? I think what we're seeing at the moment is many people who are quite ill who are unvaccinated or haven't had the booster. And I think it again proves to me and without wanting to say I told you so to anyone, we'd never do that. But it is kind of saying when people are saying, why am I so sick? Why is it going on so long? We are saying, well, unfortunately, the booster probably would have offered you protection. So I think it's still not too late to get that booster. You can register online and many GP practices no longer are and no longer have the vaccine. Some chemists do. But again, and the community vaccine clinics are still available and you can register online. So if you haven't had it, it's still not too late. And remember, it will not only protect you, but others around you. Ilona Duffy, GP, thank you for joining us. Alan.
Jane Cantwell on LMFM. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is topping the agenda at a meeting of EU leaders in France. Taoiseach Michal Martin is attending the two-day summit in Versailles along with the 26 other heads of state. They'll discuss the growing humanitarian crisis, a greater common defence strategy and Ukraine's request to join the EU. Karen Coleman is editor with Europar Radio and is across this particular summit and joins us online. Karen, it's an informal gathering, so are we to take from that it's going to be nothing more than a talking shop with nothing concrete to come out of it? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily nothing concrete to come out of it, Alan. Last night, the um, leaders issued a statement which was on Russia's aggression against Ukraine, which, as you say, is the key focus of this informal meeting. And they reiterated uh, statements we've already heard from EU leaders about, you know, very much... um, uh, saying that Russia is grossly violating international law, that it's undermining European and global safety and security. And uh, they, they, the statement went on to talk further about support to the Ukrainian people. Interesting, there was um, a, a paragraph about the aspirations of Ukraine to join the European Union. And in this statement, the EU leaders, they acknowledged those aspirations, but they didn't come out and say, yes, absolutely, you know, we want to go ahead with Ukrainian membership of the EU. And I think this, you know, reflects the divisions within the EU about fast-tracking Ukrainian Mm. membership of the bloc. I doubt that's going to happen anytime soon. But the statement made a reference to the fact that they, you know, they're inviting the Commission to the European Commission to submit its opinion on Ukrainian application. I think today is going to be very interesting, Alan, because today is focusing on bolstering the EU's defence capabilities and also reducing the EU's dependency for energy um, on Russia. And also they're going to be talking about building a more robust economic base. But there's been a lot of discussion in Ireland, obviously, and other countries about where we might stand in terms of our neutral, non-aligned military status and also then the fact that the EU is very much moving towards greater defence capabilities and putting more money into I mean, when you you think exactly on on that point where Olaf Scholz was talking about 2% of GDP to go back into defence, I mean, when you think of Ireland and us being a neutral country, and I use that term very loosely, but what are we going to do or what can we do? Well, this is going to be a very interesting um, discussion for Ireland. And indeed, as we've seen, unprecedented moves by other neutral non-aligned states. I mean, for example, Sweden actually um, sent assault rifles and anti-tank weapons to Kiev to support the Ukrainians. And Finland has w- as well took an unprecedented step of sending um, some um, our, our, our weapons and arms to Ukraine. And definitely it has raised issues for Ireland about our own status and what we do. Um, because, of course, uh, as we know, Ireland has very little defence capabilities. And in fact, there's a European Parliament plenary session on in Strasbourg during the week. And I was talking to Barry Andrews about this very point. And he said uh, said something along the lines, 
we're neutral, yes, but we can't defend ourselves also. And I think, you know, this is going to be a discussion that will only increase in terms of what the neutral, non-aligned countries are going to do. And while, on the other hand, you will certainly have a drive among the likes of, for example, France, which has been very much pushing for much greater EU defence capabilities, much greater spending on on defence as well. And, of course, this isn't just about weapons. It's also about cyber security, something Mm -hmm. that, of course, Ireland has been hit by and is also talking about. Do you think there's an appetite for to have a robust conversation around Ireland being a neutral country? Do you get that sense amongst the political hierarchy in Europe? Well, I mean, I think, you know, a a lot of countries would, would say this is Ireland's issue and it's not just Ireland, of course, which is neutral and non-aligned as a member of the EU. It also other states will have to consider it as well. But it is going to be a very tricky issue, I think, going forward, because what we've seen with Russia is, you know, if Russia was to attack Ireland, for example, we, we would collapse within probably five minutes of such an assault. We clearly cannot defend ourselves. We're not a member of NATO. We would have to rely on the goodwill, if you like, of perhaps the UK, the US or other allies to defend ourselves. And maybe over the last several decades, this hasn't been an issue, Alan, but certainly it brings into very stark contrast now the fact that, you know, while we remain neutral, we can't defend ourselves. And on the the other hand, you have country like Ukraine calling for help, particularly military help, as we know from NATO, which they're not giving it in terms of no-fly zones and all of that, and the EU as well. So I think this will only increase, I think, the need for Ireland, for people in Ireland to have a very serious conversation about this and, you know, particularly our vulnerabilities, uh, whether we could defend ourselves in the light of any attack from an enemy country. Can I just talk to you for a moment about the response from the European Union in relation to this crisis? It's cohesive, it's very much glued together and there's no sign of that uh, fracturing uh, anytime soon. But how long more do you think we can have that cohesion and agreement if this war drags on? Well, I think what we have seen is that that cohesion has been good. It's been a good thing. Um, It's going to get more difficult, Alan. I mean, we simply do not know what is going to happen in terms of the ongoing Russian assault on Ukraine. We're hearing very, very chilling accounts coming from the likes of Zelensky, the president of Ukraine and others, that Russia may well start to launch some kind of chemical, biological uh, weapon assault on Ukraine. I mean, You know, we're already seeing unbelievable scenes of attacks on innocent civilians and those dreadful scenes from Mariupol and the attack on the maternity hospital there. I I, I don't know how we're going to react as people and as a bloc if, if indeed Russia goes ahead and launches some horrendous missiles of a chemical and biological nature on the people of Ukraine. I mean, I think solidarity is what will be needed in very, very challenging times ahead. And not least, I mean, you know, and there are fractures appearing in in terms of, for example, what to do with reducing dependency on Russian oil and gas and coal imports right now, something that's going to be discussed. Some EU countries 
want to severely reduce that dependency, but other countries don't. And of course, you have countries like Germany, which are highly dependent on imports of Russian gas right now. And they can't just switch off the taps because what is going to power their, you know, their manufacturing plants, their cars, their aircraft, everything else. And so, you know, Europe has been caught in a very vulnerable situation, but the EU is trying to catch up. The Commission just the other day produced an outline of a, of a, of a, um, a, a goal called Repower EU, which is all about trying to get the EU now quickly off its dependency on fossil mm-hmm. fuels, move towards renewable energies. But of course, this is going to take time. And there's all this issue about what you do in the meantime before these renewable energies come on. So indeed, there will, there will be major challenges to keep this unanimity in in. Okay the days, weeks and months ahead. Can we just talk a little bit about diplomacy because I know there's a certain sense of shuttle diplomacy, I suppose you could call it, happening at the fringes of this. I mean, we had the Russian foreign minister and we also had uh, the Ukrainian foreign minister's meet, which didn't really amount to too much. But it seems that Emmanuel Macron is the man who's got the direct line to Putin. Are we just over-egging the omelette on that one, do you think? Well, he also had the direct line on uh, with Putin. And indeed, as you know, of course, he went to meet him and there was that bizarre uh, situation where the two of them were across this massive table with Putin on one end of it and, and, and Macron on the other. But he didn't succeed in persuading Macron to stop the uh, invasion of Ukraine. And indeed, of course, other EU leaders met with Putin and and talked to him endless times to try and get him to stop this. So you would have to question to what extent are these diplomatic efforts making a difference? Um, I don't know, really. Um, I'm not privy to the inner circles of Macron's cabinet. I don't know whether he does or doesn't have powers to persuade him to, to, to put down his arms. I mean, he clearly isn't succeeding so far. And if if Russia goes ahead, as Ukraine is warning, and they've been right. I mean, they've been right about what they're saying Russia's intentions have been so far. And one, you know, doesn't necessarily have any reason not to believe them this time around. If, um, if Russia goes ahead and launches chemical, a chemical attack, a biological attack on Ukraine, then you'd have to really wonder if any diplomatic efforts are working so far. But of course, EU leaders and those behind the scenes are trying to do their utmost to stop any further aggression against Ukraine, to stop NATO being brought in, to stop the EU as a whole being brought in in a much more military way. But at the same time, Ukrainians are dying. They're being attacked. Civilians are being attacked. We know the International War Crimes Tribunal prosecutor is looking at this now that war crimes are being committed against the people of Ukraine. So we're entering extremely difficult and challenging times in terms of diplomatic efforts and what they're achieving and the reality on the ground in Ukraine. Where do you think this will ultimately end? I simply don't know, Alan. I really don't know. I mean, I, you know, many years ago um, was a a correspondent for the BBC in the former Yugoslavia. I arrived in Bosnia towards the end of the conflict there. Um, after horrendous war there and sieges of the likes of Sarajevo and then went on to um, chart the beginning of the war in Kosovo. Um, But certainly it was NATO bombing of uh, Bosnian Serb, the Bosnian Serb military areas in Pali and elsewhere in Bosnia that put an end to the war in Bosnia. Now we're talking about a very different situation there. And at the time, Europe couldn't agree on what it could do. This is a much different kind of conflict because Moscow has its fingers 
on the nuclear buttons and it's so much more serious even though many many people died in Yugoslavia as well but you know we we watched for years and you were I, I you know I think you know a journalist who would have watched this at the same time yeah. we watched people being women being raped uh, we watched people in Sarajevo um, being starved we witnessed the horrors of Srebrenica the horrors of Srebrenica more than 8,000 Muslim men and boys uh, being killed there in that genocide and you know we watched helplessly really the UN went in with their hands tied behind their backs because they didn't have a strong enough mandate and it really was only until strong military aggression really largely brought in by the United States I mean it was it was when uh, I think Bill Clinton at the time was in power. When mm-hmm. they watched the Srebrenica massacre, they said, that's it. That's the end of it. Now we're going to go in. And you wonder, you know, and I'm watching this, wondering at what stage will we be brought into this? I, I, I'm finding it difficult to believe that, there won't, that NATO won't be dragged into it. And, you know, can we look back in history and look back and say, well, we let millions of Ukrainians be massacred and slaughtered to save the rest of us but at the end we were brought in but we just don't have a crystal ball but you don't see the problem is we're not seeing massive protests in Russia right now that's not happening now of course they're being silenced independent media are have are, they've had to shut down their outlets and now you know they're being spewed horrendous propaganda and you know, Russians, many Russians believe, are believing this stuff. And so we're not seeing millions of people on the streets in Russia, which would be the hope that the yeah. people themselves say enough, enough. That's not happening right now. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's very to, to Just to very know. finally, I leave it on this point. I mean, you talk about NATO going in. If that happens, that's ultimately a declaration of war, is it not? I mean, if we put in a no-fly zone there even, it's a declaration of war against the Russians. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you know, the first Russian military jet that's going to be blown up uh, by a NATO anti-missile uh, missile um, is, is going, Putin will see this as a complete act of war. And then what's safe? You know, then, then are we all vulnerable to uh, long range missile attacks by Moscow? Not, not you know, not, not, not mm-hmm. to mind cyber attacks. Um, but yes, and that's the problem. And, and that, of course, is why NATO and the EU have been pushing very hard against military involvement in that sense. Um, but, but I'm afraid that's what it would, be, would amount to. And then, you know, who knows what is going where to happen after that and where it will end. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Karen Coleman, editor with Europarl Radio, joining us this morning. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. A special Oroctus briefing led by the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland has been told up to 40% of dementias are preventable, highlighting the need to resource early intervention awareness and new treatments. Speaking at the event hosted by the Old Party Oroctus Group on Dementia in advance of the Brain Awareness Week, which is March 14 to 20, the ASI clinicians, academics and the Global Brain Health Institute showcased opportunities to increase prevention and significant developments in medical treatments. The briefing highlighted the need for sufficient resources to fund these opportunities as there are 64,000 people living with dementia in this country and the number is forecast to more than double in the next 25 years. Joining us this morning is Clodagh Whelan, Advocacy Manager with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Clodagh, thank you so much for joining us. First of all, let's just talk about dementia. What is it? It's an umbrella term, isn't it? It is. People often ask, Alan, and and thanks for having me on, what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? And dementia is an umbrella term. 
and the most common form of dementia is Alzheimer's. So about 70% of people in Ireland who live with a diagnosis of dementia will actually be living with Alzheimer's. But of course, there's other types. There's vascular dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies. And I suppose the, the good news is in this briefing that all dementias are potentially preventable if we look at those modifiable risk factors. Now, I looked at that figure 40% and I questioned it because it is not by any stretch of the imagination insignificant. It is quite a figure to think that if we put the resources behind it, we could actually affect the lives of many thousands of people. We absolutely could. So what the information says is that up to 40% of dementias are potentially preventable. So we know that the modifiable risk factors exist and we'll, we'll definitely talk about them in a moment. And what we need to do now is to have intervention with those risk factors and research that in a longitudinal study. So, you know, ask people to take steps to look after their cardiovascular health, to address things like smoking, you know, look at depression, all, all those risk factors, and then look at how the, the population health and the brain health increases. Mm. But we do think, you're right, it is an incredible figure and it's it's a message of hope. And I suppose for us in the Alzheimer's Society, when we go to the Oireachtas, we always bring a very hard-hitting message to our politicians. We tell them about family carers, people living with dementia all around the country. I'm sure there's people listening into your show right now who are struggling, who don't not have a, enough support. Maybe they go to a day centre, but they can't get an extra day. Or maybe they they need home care and that's not possible. And that's a message that we will always okay. bring to politicians. Claude, can I ask you about, you touched on the risk factors, but can I ask you, yeah. is it a genetic disease? Um, so, no, it, it, a really small amount. We estimate around 1% of dementia are actually due to genetics. So a lot of people will be sitting at home with the radio right now and they'll think, gosh, if my mom had dementia or my dad, it's inevitable. And I suppose that's why this is a message of hope because there is a really, really, you know, strong suite of measures that you can take to look after your brain health. Such as? I would say, say just to finish on the genetics, that for people living with an intellectual disability, there's definitely a genetic component. So someone with an intellectual disability has five times more likely the chance of developing dementia than their peer in the general population. So that's, and that's another message that we highlighted to politicians, the importance for brain health awareness for people living with an intellectual disability, the importance of memory service clinics for that group as well. Um, but, but to go back to your question, what are those risk factors? So sometimes the way I remember it for myself, because I'm not a clinician, is what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So if we do things like not smoking, eating a healthy diet, reducing our risk of diabetes, um, addressing high blood pressure, obesity, all those factors, they're, they're really important. And then there are some ones unique to dementia. So hearing loss is a risk factor. And I suppose a very interesting one for your listeners today is social connection and depression has a real impact on your brain health. So loneliness is a risk factor. And that's something, you know, as we come out of COVID, we know that people are anxious about going back out in the world. Maybe we're not linking in with our neighbours and friends as much as we used to. And it's a timely reminder, I think, 
that social connection is good for our brains. Being part of a local group or club or just meeting someone for a walk, calling to your neighbour for a cup of tea, all those things that we can do again now are very important for your brain health. Can I ask you of the signs of early onset dementia, Um you know, from time yeah. to time, and like I know what happens to myself, you, you'll walk up the stairs to get something and you get to the stop of stair, to the stairs and say, what the hell am I after coming up here for? You've just yeah. forgotten. Yeah. Or you put your phone down and say, where the hell did I put that phone? And all of a sudden you just remember you left it out there. Is that just simple forgetfulness? Yeah, well, what you're saying there, Alan, I suppose, is the fear that a lot, a lot of people have an awful lot of fear about developing dementia and one way to address that fear is for our, our community to become more dementia inclusive and to, for all of us to build our awareness. Um, there is benign forgetfulness, you know, where you do, you go up to the top of the stairs, you think, what did I get? Or you misplaced your keys. But I suppose if you have any concerns about your memory, if anyone's listening and they think, gosh, I am worried, you should go to your GP and you can also ring our helpline, which is one 800 341 341 and they have further information they can direct you to services in the area and you you know there's I suppose that's another message Mm. from today that there is there is help out there and you know there's a lot of services in Loud and Mead and with a beautiful day centre in the Birches and and we really want people to connect with the Alzheimer's Society and their their clinicians, their GP, their public health nurse, if they are worried about their brain health. What's your own view on keeping the brain active in terms of Sudoku, reading, doing puzzles, all that sort of thing? Um, it's a really good question. Um, I, I used to work before um, I was advocacy manager with people living with dementia very closely at all stages of their disease in a day centre and then as advocates. And anybody I meet with dementia would say that if they try and and exercise their brain, that it, it keeps them healthier for longer. So they would say that they challenge themselves to do the things that they always used to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the early stages of dementia, you can um, avail of cognitive stimulation therapy. So there are there's definitely things we can all do to maintain our our brains and, and be active. Okay. But I suppose that those interventions, like we say, the Sudoku and the quizzes, they they're definitely something that are good for us, but I wouldn't have the the research, you know, the, the actual clinical facts on that. Of course. OK, Claudia, we must leave it there. Claudia Whelan is Advocacy Manager with the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Thank you for joining us this morning. Just before we let you go, we want to remind you that our Red Cross crisis appeal was 62,000 when we spoke to you first off. It has now gone up significantly. Thank you so much to everybody who has contributed to that. We must leave it there for this morning. I want to thank Chris on sound, to Marie on production. We'll talk again hopefully soon. Good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.